Great. If you've got your Bibles, uh, if you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 27, um, this morning we've reached our penultimate week in our series, the second part of Acts we're calling Missional. And if you uh, like titles, um, the title of this morning is God's Providence in the Storm. God's Providence in the Storm. In other words, God's total control and authority and sovereignty over all things. His insight, his wisdom, total control over all things. And I just want to help us um, by getting up to speed with the context of Acts chapter 27. Uh, We're sort of jumping a few chapters as we go. Um, But if you were with us last week you will know that the Apostle Paul is right in the middle of a trial. A bit of a trumped-up trial, but a trial nonetheless. And as we read on, we find out that the last eight chapters of the book of Acts is basically one long courtroom drama, which you might think is a little bit strange way to to finish um, what is otherwise a very action-packed Book. The book of Acts is full of miracles, full of church planting, reaching the nations, full of breakthroughs. And then you've got this last section, which is a very detailed account of Paul's trial. But it makes a lot more sense when you remember who this account was originally written for. If you remember right back at the beginning of our series in Acts, we mentioned that Luke, the author, was addressing this account to a guy called Theophilus, who in his gospel, because he credits, he writes his gospel and the book of Acts, thanks very much, he writes his gospel and the book of Acts to this guy, Theophilus. And at the beginning of his gospel, he addresses Theophilus as the most excellent Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, which is the same title that is given to Felix, the governor and judge of Judea, as well as his successor, Festus, most excellent Festus. So commentators have all sorts of different theories. I kind of of feel, I like to land on the fact that I think it's very likely that Theophilus was perhaps the judge that was presiding, proceeding over Paul's appeal in Rome. He was the guy who would decide whether or not to release Paul or to accuse Paul. So it kind of makes a whole lot more sense then when you realize this is written to a judge and therefore Luke is wanting to carry on stating Paul's innocence throughout this whole account. It's a defense not only of the gospel but also of Paul. But these last eight chapters also highlight God's providence through it all. God's providence through it all. Last week, again, if you were with us, Rob looked at what happened when Paul finally arrived in Jerusalem. There had been loads of prophetic words saying, there will be trouble if you go to Jerusalem. And sure enough, 
The moment he arrived, an angry mob stirred up by a, a fairly small group of Asian Jews. They stirred the crowd up against him and they attacked him. Basically, they wanted to kill him. Yet God, in his providence, used the Roman troops to intervene and basically save his life. And you would have thought Paul would have kind of, oh, I've learned my lesson there. I better keep my head down. Not a thing of it. Paul uses this as a platform to tell his story, to tell about Jesus and about the resurrection of the dead. That really doesn't go down very well. And the crowd get more and more angry. And so the the Roman authorities decide to throw him in the barracks and and give him a flogging. You know, let's get to the bottom of what's, what's causing all this. And Paul throws out his, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't flog me card, which was very timely. And so they decide the following day to release him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, who try and basically try and execute him legally. When that doesn't work, they try and plan an assassination. These guys want Paul dead. They are desperate to get rid of him. But again, God in his sovereignty uses the Roman soldiers to protect him. And because of this threat on his life, they decide to transport him to Caesarea, to the governor of Judea, to Felix, with the protection of basically a small army that goes with him to Caesarea. And so we see Paul's audience kind of climbing up the ranks of of authority and superiority. But for Paul, this is just another opportunity to tell his story, to talk about Jesus, and, and do you know what? Felix, he's challenged. He's challenged by what Paul says, particularly about the judgment. That disturbs him. And, and he doesn't really know what to do with Paul. So actually, he keeps him under guard with some freedoms for, for up to two years. And, and Paul uses that time to continue to sow seeds of the gospel into Felix and his family. But Felix keeps putting it off, keeps debating. I just want to talk about it a little bit more. Never makes a decision. After two years, Felix is succeeded by Festus. Festus inherits Paul, doesn't really know what to do with him, has another trial, wants to hear what Paul's saying. says, look, look, do you want to go back to, to Jerusalem and be put on trial there? And Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar. In other words, I want to get to Rome. And whether in chains or not, you're going to get me to Rome. Because he appealed to Caesar, Festus didn't have any other choice. But he still didn't know what to charge Paul with. So he, he asks his, his brother-in-law, King Agrippa, great-grandson of Herod the Great, because he's a Jew. He might know these sort of religious situations. He might have some insight, might know what to charge Paul with. And so King Agrippa listens to Paul. And hears him out. So just pause for a moment, because we just covered five chapters in a very short space of time. Please do read through those five chapters, because every time Paul gives an account, it is a stunning, wonderful presentation of the gospel, a wonderful demonstration of how you can tell your own story, whatever situation you're in. Please do read those for yourself. But let's just pause for a moment, because what started as an angry mob in Jerusalem, has now given Paul 
the platform to speak to the king, his queen, the whole, the governor of the area, and all the officials in that city. That is some audience. That is an amazing platform, just as Jesus promised he would. If you remember back in Acts 9 in Paul's conversion, Jesus said, This is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is just, this is just, Jesus foretold this. He knew this was going to come. It's just the wonderful providence of God orchestrating all of this. And Paul doesn't waste this opportunity. And in Acts chapter 26, he gives his longest discord yet. Again, please do read it. He, he concludes by saying, I, I'm saying nothing beyond what the, the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. He's saying this is what was prophesied. This is the Messiah. He's Jesus. He is the first fruits, resurrection of the dead. This message is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. He laid it on the line. So even in the most incredibly challenging, pressurized situations, you know, life and death situations, we see God orchestrating every step of the way to get Paul where he needs him to be. And we also see Paul making the most of every opportunity. And it's so important we get those two things in balance. God's complete sovereignty, his providence over all things, and our responsibility to make the most of every opportunity. We see those two things working out here. You know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because although Paul was meant to be on trial and the authorities were in control, actually, in reality, it was the authorities that were spiritually in the dock. And God was the one who was truly in control. So how did they respond to this, this message of grace we've been singing about this morning and celebrating? Well, as I said, Felix was deeply challenged. But he kept on putting off and putting off the decision. Just like, Can we just have another debate about it? And I, I don't know if you've got friends like that. Maybe we were like that ourselves before we came to surrender our lives to Jesus. You know, people who know there's, there's truth in what you're saying. I can see it in the way you live your lives. But, but, but what's the rush? We probably know people like that. That was Felix. What's the rush? Festus, well, well he dismisses Paul's message as a load of rubbish. He laughs it off. He calls basically Paul a nutter. You know, what you're saying, it's just fairy tales. It's just cloud cuckoo land. Again, we probably know people like that as well. That was Festus. With King Agrippa, he's, he's more concerned about his position and his reputation. He had a difficult job. He was there to, to appease the Jews, but also had this slightly difficult relationship with Rome as well. That was his primary concern. He was more concerned about his reputation and position. And so he mocks Paul. He says, are you trying to, in this short time, make me a Christian? If you remember, that term Christian was a derogatory term then. Are you trying to make me a Christian? 
kind of just laughs it off. In other words, they hear the gospel message and choose to reject it. And yet for me, the challenge is this. Paul cared more about their salvation than about getting himself out of chains. That I find really challenging. You know, ultimately he knew he was the one who was truly free and they were the ones in chains. Question is, do we care more about our reputation, our position, our comfort, even our our safety and security? Do we care more about that than about someone else's eternal destiny? I find that really challenging. So we've got to chapter 27. Festus has no other option but to find a ship heading to Italy and put Paul on on it. Under armed guard, he uh, appoints a centurion called Julius to oversee and guard him. And we get a little break from the courtroom trial. However, as you read through chapter 27, you realize it's not really a break from any sort of trial because Paul is heading straight into a very different sort of trial, a very real storm that causes the ship to be completely destroyed. He goes from courtroom drama to shipwreck. And I don't know about you, but I I kind of think, give Paul a break. It's one thing after another, isn't it? Mobbed imprisoned, held under guard for years in custody, and now a shipwreck? I mean, maybe you feel like your life is going from one trial to another trial. Well, that's what Paul's experience was here. And yet Luke doesn't just write about this shipwreck as an incidental thing. Oh, yes, on the way to Rome, they got shipwrecked. He actually spends a lot of time looking at this storm and looking at this shipwreck. In fact, he spends more time describing this storm and the shipwreck than he did describing the day of Pentecost. It's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? Well, I think it's because Luke is trying again to show us that in every storm, in every trial of life, in every situation, no matter how hard or how shocking, God is still working out his good and perfect will. You know, as he showed throughout Paul's trials, it's still about God's complete sovereignty over all things, positioning Paul into a place of influence. And we see again, as we read through this storm, that again, God positions Paul in a place of influence. Through these trials, through these storms. So let's just read verse 10 of chapter 27. It should come up on the, uh, on the screen behind me as well. But what ha- what's happened is they've made very slow progress. Paul has said, look, this is not the time to sail. This is not the right time of year. You know, he had a lot of experience of these seas. He had done quite a few missionary journeys, hadn't he? He knew about that. So they'd made really painful progress. Finally got to Crete. And he says, verse 10, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? And bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives too. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, 
followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Sure enough, we read in verse 14, before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. That's a scary place to be, completely at the mercy of the storm. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. That's some storm, isn't it? They hit rock bottom. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Now, this is not Paul picking a really good time to say, I told you so. If he finished there, that would be particularly unhelpful, wouldn't it? However tempting that must have been. You should have listened to me. But listen, he goes on, verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. How did he know this? Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he has told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And again, as we read through this account, we see how Paul goes from being an irrelevant bottom rung of the ladder prisoner of Rome to being a person of mighty influence, a person who courageously takes the lead and ultimately leads them to safety. Amazing. How did that happen? Well, three things particularly stand out for me. Three things that I believe are really timely for us in our present time. Because I think Rob mentioned last week, I totally agree, I don't think there's been a time like we're in now, at least in my lifetime, where people are waking up morning by morning to trial after trial, to storm after storm, to being shaken hearing tragedy after tragedy. There's a real sense people are being shaken at the moment. And you know what? As a church, we are uniquely positioned and we are uniquely qualified to follow Paul's example here in this chapter and be a people of influence to point people who are unsettled, who are fearful, who are anxious about the future, to be a people who can point them to our source of hope, to our source of courage, and ultimately to our source of peace. And so these three things, I really hope we can take on board, because all of it really is is rooted in our ability to trust 
in God's providence. To trust that in all the things we are hearing on the news and we see in our nation and the nations, God is still working out his will and his purpose. We need to trust that. We need to be confident in it. And that's the first thing that jumps out for me. Paul is confident in God and in nothing else. His confidence is not in the ship and how well built it is. Will it hold together? You know, they were wrapping ropes around the ship to try and hold the timbers together. His confidence wasn't in the ropes. His confidence wasn't in the ship. His confidence wasn't in the the captain and his ability to to steer them through the storm. That's not where his confidence lay. It was totally and completely in the fact that God was in control. God wanted him in Rome to face Caesar. And no storm, however violent, however long it lasted, was going to stop that. We've been singing about it this morning. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Nothing can. Not even this mighty, mighty storm. In other words, his focus, his primary focus was not on the waves and the rocks. His primary focus was on God's power and his promises. Again, it begs the question, what's your confidence in? At this time... When people are getting shaken, what's your confidence in? You know, people put their confidence in their careers, in their reputations, in their bank balance. People put their, their, their confidence in the political system, the government. You know, the trouble is, whatever those things that you put your confidence in, whenever those things crash and go down, so does your confidence, so does your hope, so does your peace. There's been a lot of talk about the need for certainty, the need for stability, and there is a mighty need for certainty and stability. But the truth is, the only thing that can give us real certainty and real security is the faithfulness of God. It's the only thing. That's where Paul found his true courage. That's where he found his true hope. You know, one of my favorite verses, I talk about it a lot, Hebrews 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. So we read about this storm. We see the sailors, the crew, throwing sea anchors overboard to try and slow this ship down, to try and get some sort of control, to stop it slamming against the rocks. But listen, Paul had a far more effective anchor. He had an anchor for his soul. His anchor was was totally rooted in his relationship with God. That's where his anchor was was rooted. His confidence, his security, it was rooted elsewhere in his relationship with God. And a little while later, when he's in chains, when he finally arrives in Rome, he writes this to the Ephesians. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Although he was facing a very real storm, although people around him were fearing for their lives, 
He's like, I'm seated in heavenly places. That's where my security is. My security is in my position in Christ. That's where he gets his peace from. And listen, guys, if you're a Christian this morning, you too can know this same peace. You too can know this same courage, even in the trials and storms of life. When we refuse to allow our primary focus to be on our circumstances, but on the faithfulness of God, as we were looking at last week. Where your primary focus lies determines whether you're controlled by faith or fear, hope or despair. It's all about where our focus is. But notice too how Paul didn't just gain courage for himself. He didn't just gain courage for himself, he also encouraged others. And that's why we read about, you know, he was reassuring them, God will do what he says he will do. None of you will die. I trust my God. He, he encouraged them. And again, the same is true for us. We too have the privilege of being those who are able to encourage others around us. Again, to, to show them the source of our courage, our confidence, our peace as well as be a practical help to those around us. Because although Paul's focus was heavenward, that didn't mean his head was in the clouds. But actually, he took a very practical lead, which takes us on to point two. In the storm, God gives us practical wisdom, Practical insight. He gave Paul insight into the storm in the first place. And we read in verse 30, he also gives him insight, we're not told how, into the fact that the sailors were going to abandon ship and leave the soldiers and the prisoners to perish. And Paul, very practically, he tells the centurion, this is what's going to happen. And so they trust him enough to cut free the lifeboat that the crew were going to use to escape in. They cut through, free the, life, the lifeboat. That, that takes some courage. That could have been my ticket out of here. No, I'm going to trust this guy, Paul. I'm going to trust his God. I'm going to cut the lifeboat free. And again, later on, we read in verse 34, he encouraged them to eat and get some strength. Reminding them again, not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. You know, although his hope was rooted not in the circumstances, but in the, the providence of God, it didn't mean he, he was detached from the reality of what was going on around him. He didn't suddenly become super spiritual and deny anything was happening around him. No, he got practically involved in what was happening around him. Again, just in really practical ways. Guys, you need to get your strength up. Eat some food. When we do run aground, you might have to swim quite far to shore. Practically, get your strength up. Again, just encouraging people with the wisdom of God. We all need insight and wisdom, don't we? To navigate our storms, and to help others navigate their storms. You know, it's been wonderful dedicating Joel this morning. And I know as a parent, parenting can feel like you're literally running from one storm to another. 
You know, and as they grow up, I don't think it changes, does it? And yet we can trust God completely with our children. We can trust his providence of their, over their lives. But we can also ask him for practical wisdom and practical insight into how we're to, to parent these little treasures and sometimes big treasures. We can ask him for wisdom. I love that. God, give me insight here. Help me to navigate this storm. We can ask him with great confidence. Having a heavenly perspective, having a focus that that goes beyond our immediate circumstances doesn't mean we've got our head in the clouds and ignore the reality of the situation. But actually, it enables us to be far more effective in the storm. Because we're not limited and inhibited by fear or by panic or any form of anxiety. This takes us to our final point. How did Paul come to a place of such influence? Thirdly, because in the storm, people tend to wake up and listen. Storms have a habit of shaking people awake from being apathetic and putting things off. You know, Paul must have got very used to being ignored. Although he saw many, many come to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, he also saw many, many reject his message of grace. As we just said, you know, Felix, Festus, King Agrippa, they all ignored his message. And yet, when he got to the ship as well, went to the centurion, told him about the storm. This is not going to be good. Guess what? He got ignored. You know, why should I listen to you? And yet, when the storm hit, everybody was listening to Paul. Everybody was following his every word. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Paul boarded that ship with absolutely no authority and no position. And yet God, in his providence, put him in a place of huge influence, huge influence and real leadership. You know, our, our, our sense of influence as Christians in this world is it's not about our, our physical position. It's not about our title. It's about where God places us. It's about our authority in Christ. You know, we may feel at times that our message is irrelevant, even gets ignored. But I really believe if we continue to be faithful in our walk with God, continue to to be a people of integrity in the small, everyday things, because those things really, really matter, when the storms of life do hit... That is when people start to look to us. That is when people notice there's something different about us in the storm. We may be facing the same storms, but we're not falling apart. 
We haven't lost hope. That's when we become a people of influence. And I really believe that now, like no other time, we have a position to be a people of influence, particularly when so many people are anxious about the future. We are able then to guide people and encourage people and give hope to people. And we mustn't waste this opportunity. It's often said people are like tea bags. I don't know if you've heard that one. When you put them in hot water, you suddenly realize what's inside of them. And it's the same with storms of life. When we're all in hot water, people really see what's inside of us. And for Paul, they saw a supernatural courage and strength and a supernatural peace that goes beyond all understanding. That's the peace of God transcends all understanding. You know, we have a wonderful opportunity to serve others and to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And like Paul did, to lead people to salvation ultimately. Wonderful opportunity. If we could have the band back, just give them time to get ready. You know, this morning, if, if you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus, can I encourage you not to be a Felix? Don't put off, put off, put off and say, what's the rush? There's always tomorrow. Can I encourage you not to delay? And can I encourage you also, don't be a, a Festus or a King Agrippa. Don't just laugh it off and say, well, this is all just fairy tale. Investigate. Really seek after the truth because the truth is Jesus really is our only certain and sure hope. He really is. And people can testify and testify to the truth of that. But if you are a Christian this morning, if you have surrendered your life to God, can I encourage you, keep your confidence in God's total providence over all things. Whatever's happening in this world, whatever is happening in your life, you know, particularly in the trials, particularly in the storms, trust His providence, trust His faithfulness, and trust Him to position you into a place of influence. We don't have to fight and claw our way to influence. It's as we surrender our lives to God, as Paul did, that's when God says he will raise us up. That's when, as we humble ourselves, he will raise us up to places of influence where we can surely serve others, encourage others, and bear witness to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.